Welcome to DAC Beachcross Lawcast. My name is Richard Hiley, a partner at DACB. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Simon Conster, a senior partner. Uh, Simon, like me, specialises in advising on accountants' liabilities. And also by my partner, Laura Berry, specialising in disputes and one of the leaders in our ESG group. Simon and I are going to discuss the impact of AI in the world of accountancy and audit. We are then going to discuss the world of ESG and accountants with Laura. I hope you will enjoy the session. I know we will. Uh, Simon, um, I'm going to ask you to horizon scan around the development of AI with something we'll focus on audit. ChatGBT has turbocharged the debate and about the use of AI in professions over the last six months. And can you please start with describing the state of play in terms of the use of AI in the audit arena? Well, thank you, Richard. And um, yes, delighted to. I think the first point to note is that we've seen the use of data science and analytics for some time in the audit arena. And AI itself has been used on an increasing basis in the accounting and audit professions for some years now. So the use of the technology is not new per se, but what is arguably new is the gathering power of AI in that while data science is about finding hidden patterns in the data, AI is about the use of algorithms uh, and building models that will emulate human um, understanding and emulate human sort of cognition. So in that sense, AI promises, I suppose, to usurp the traditional human auditor activity and judgments in the audit sphere, um, but crucially, um, to do so uh, more efficiently, uh, much quicker, and in a more comprehensive way. Um, you, you asked about the state of play of the use of AI in the audit arena. It's not really possible to gauge uh, with complete accuracy the full extent of the uh, deployment of AI. But in an ICAEW article uh, a little while ago, it was suggested that AI was impacting around 7% uh, of audit tasks and processes. Well, I think 7% is uh, a material amount already, and no doubt it will um, continue to grow. Um, and moreover, um, the larger firms have already gone public on the level of investment that they are budgeting for the development of AI uh, capabilities. And that investment um, is going to run to nearly billions across uh, accountancy generally, but also uh, inclusive of the, of the audit function. So it's exciting development for the professions. Uh, I think it's bound to lead to enhanced quality and consistency in audit. And in that respect, is something that I think we expect regulators and indeed the corporates themselves to, to welcome and encourage. And I suppose one final observation as we're horizon scanning, although not necessarily directly relevant to the subject matter of today's uh, broadcast, is that AI um, has the potential to be defining and will over time, I think, have a very significant impact on audit firm operating models with potentially quite disruptive consequences from a 
market and competition perspective, um, which are by no means straightforward to predict in the longer term. But I think that's a slightly different uh, perspective on the development of AI than the one that we have in hand um, today. In order, in order for us to take this discussion a little bit further, uh, can you talk to us about the nature of the applications of AI in the audit context? Sure. Um, what you might say is that AI will um, enable the review of a far greater level of journal entries, transactions, and data points than could be could ever be achieved by what one might call traditional processing and testing. Um, it learns behaviours within the within the business and distills out anomalies and high risk elements um, as a consequence in 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 a, in a highly speedy and efficient way as one of the very largest firms put it um, as this AI develops ultimately we may see the ability to x-ray their language not mine but x-ray a business and um, analyze billions of data points in in a matter of seconds and if you just step back and think about that that could be um, transformational on on any number of levels so I, I think that that's the sort of the main point um, the anomaly detection that AI will ultimately be able to achieve um, I think is also of a different order it will not just identify outlying transactions but also um, potentially quite ostensibly normal transactions, but those posted outside of normal posting behaviours and patterns. And then finally, you have the development of machine learning of contracts, loan agreements, leasing of documents, and that broad body of more unstructured data, again, uh, being reviewed, analysed and interrogated with a view to identifying high value, more material risk areas on a on a more targeted basis. So that's the general use of it, Richard. So from that description, we will definitely see changes in the way audits are carried out. And perhaps we could come back to that in a moment when um, I ask for some thoughts on uh, risk areas for audit. Um, but, but before we get on to that, um, can we talk about, can we explore uh, the principles of scope of duty and standard of care? Um, can you give us your thoughts, please, on um, how these questions of scope and standard of duty are going to be affected? Yeah. And, and this is, I think, a really, really interesting area. My start point, uh, Richard, in that respect is that if the promise associated with AI is borne out, um, building on existing and already versatile and powerful uh, data analytics tools, then you would expect to achieve improved um, audit quality over time 
and that should naturally see an overall reduction in the propensity for uh, misstatement and I suppose in that regard um, instance of liability and regulatory issues but at the same time I think it would be unrealistic to assume uh, that AI would usher in an era of no misstatements and no undetected uh, fraud uh, and the like. So I think to analyse scope is a is a very uh, fair question. Um, in, in that context, my sense is that scope and purpose of an auditor's duty will uh, remain unchanged um, in that it will always be an expression of uh, the auditor's opinion derived from the Companies Act requirements rather than some uh, warranting or certification process, although I think some of the advertisements and boasts about the potential usage of AI uh, need to be treated carefully because they might give the impression that it will ultimately become a warranting or certification process when I don't believe that to be the intent. Um, but, but whilst the scope and purpose of a duty will remain, I suspect, the same, clearly AI has the potential to increase and create a more exacting standard of care in the performance of that duty. In the context of the expected extent and effectiveness of, of testing to be undertaken and the identify, identification of the anomalies and, and, and risk areas um, uh, that the use of AI um, will enable. Um, in fact, I don't think it's unreasonable over time to contemplate the standard in effect developing beyond that of the reasonably competent traditional slash human auditor and into that of the reasonably competent auditor deploying and with the ability to deploy AI to detect misstatement, fraud and the like. Um, as um, the use of AI gathers pace and as it becomes a more permanent um, part of the audit process, um, it is quite difficult to see a court when assessing compliance with the standard of care and the level of standard um, um, somehow to revert to some analog measure of competency and diligence. And I think it's inevitable that one's going to have to have regard to the technological capabilities that AI imports. Now, that is absolutely not to suggest that as we stand here today, firms must employ AI, of course, but you know this is a horizon scanning um, exercise. Um, and it just seems to me that where the AI is available, uh, where its use is promoted and advertised and it's used, um, it's, um, it's not fanciful to see uh, quite material enhancements to the expected standard of care um, developing. And um, in due course, um, in an environment where we know that any system can have weaknesses and it's very clearly on the record in the context of AI that it can develop bias and um, hallucination issues in a quite sort of unanticipatable way, uh, will we see the adequacy of the AI itself and the technological safeguards around it becoming um, an additional battlefield uh, where there are misstatements over and above um, the one constant, which will be that there will still always need to be 
human judgment deployed around identified risk areas and anomalies. Um, it seems to me that in the disputes environment, um, if if a claimant uh, feels that they can attack not just the human judgments, but also the adequacy and potential deficiencies um, of the uh, AI software used, then they will look to do that. Um, so I think that's broadly where we might see uh, this develop over time, Richard. I guess just thinking in response to that, Simon, I guess uh, all of us, both in and out of the audit profession, are going to have to uh, incorporate our AI in our DNA, so to speak, in the way that we conduct our work. So at the moment, uh, there is frequently a collision, isn't there, between uh, the world of the professional and the world of the tech expert. And where you have a meeting of the two worlds, um, you can have miscommunication and therefore um, the possibility of error, where one person saying something means something else to the person who's listening. Um, it'll be very interesting, won't it, to see to what extent AI actually overcomes such difficulties because it becomes so much easier for the professional just to communicate directly with the computer, with the machine. Um, thinking of, in a slightly wider context, uh, of course, AI in the hands of third parties might create new risks. Uh, perhaps you can give us your thoughts, Simon, on whether the use, that, that is the malign use of AI, might increase the risk of misstatement. It's really interesting. I mean, we've all been monitoring uh, the development of deepfake technology, uh, and it's really staggering um, uh, how effective that deepfake technology might be. And there is no inherent reason, I suppose, why it might not be deployed in the audit setting. Uh, Richard Murphy, professor of uh, accounting practice at the University of Sheffield Management School, is reported to have argued recently that AI could dramatically change the profile uh, of well, sorry, the risk profile of companies and auditors because of the ability to generate false contracts with supporting documentation, uh, false bank statements, uh, false cash flows and the like. And, and, and you know, how is the, the human auditor um, going to second guess the veracity and provenance of audit evidence uh, generated through deep fake technology? So, I find it hard to judge um, how likely this is because it will require a high degree of collusion on the part of those looking to um, mislead and fabricate the audit evidence, a high degree of sophistication um, and a high degree of technological competency and, and resource. But as you and I have discussed over the last few months, Richard, when looking at this area in the round, um, the largest false accounting scandals of the last 20 or so years have been characterized by, by just such levels of um, conspiracy 
um, to fabricate evidence. So um, there must be a, a risk there. But what is um, less clear to me is whether um, the good guys, so to speak, the auditors um, and, and, and those in their camp um, will win the arms race of the technology to be able to identify um, deep fake ordered evidence um, as opposed to um, the acceptance and reliance upon non-faked um, evidence. I know that those um, tools are being developed, but of course, no doubt, they can't be foolproof. So I think there must be a risk and it'll be a very interesting area um, to develop. Thank you very much, Simon. We're now going to move on to uh, Laura's, or one of Laura's favourite subjects, ESG. Uh, it's been something which has been on the agenda for accountants for some time. Um, but recently, we've had a number of environmental and climate litigation decisions. Um, this has had a lot of publicity. And I, I wonder, Laura, whether you can start with just a few words about general trends. Yeah, so you're right, Richard. Environmental damage claims in sort of specifically the more novel litigation around climate change have taken something of a, a centre stage this year, and that's internationally, but also particularly here in England. Um, we have had some really high-profile cases issued, and actually now some of them concluded in the last few months. And, and with that have come some pretty significant failures for claimants uh, in the UK recently, and I wanted to just say a couple of words about that. Um, Maybe the action that caused the biggest stir when it was first issued was Client Earth's derivative claim against Shell. Um, now, that has been roundly dismissed at first instance. I know that uh, permission to appeal is being sought, but we don't yet know whether it will be granted. Um, certainly, the message from the first instance judgment was that claimants will really struggle to get those types of claim off the ground. Um, and that wasn't just the message in that case. It was also echoed in the Court of Appeal in, the in a case called the Megawi, which was another attempt at a derivative claim. Um, so that one, the claimants alleged that damage had been caused by a university pension scheme, having failed to make a, a credible plan to divest itself of fossil fuel investments. Um, and as I say, on, a, on appeal to the Court of Appeal that time, it was held that that claim couldn't be continued. So those two high-profile claims have failed. There's also been a, a different type of, um, but still high-profile claim failing, which was an attempt by Client Earth to sue the FCA for having approved an oil and gas company's prospectus. And, and that's significant. Whether we can say it's a trend or whether we can say it will continue is, is another question. We certainly can't say it's the end of the story. It is, it is clear that, particularly again here in England, there are important and novel claims still out there. And there is generally an increase in claims being brought in relation to environmental and, and climate change issues. Um, I think the UK is, is third globally in terms of the volume of climate change litigation being issued. So yes, those claims are difficult and no, they're not necessarily going to succeed, but that isn't stopping the activists from issuing and, and trying to push their agendas forward. So that's, that's the general landscape uh, in terms of litigation, but how does this affect accountants specifically? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think if we were just talking about corporates generally, I'd be saying everything that I've just said. And then views are 
mixed, but I personally would be concluding that we might have reached at least a slowing down point. So you would expect those activist claimants pushing their sort of novel claims through the courts to, to pause now and think about whether they ought to be forum shopping if they can or using different means of trying to put pressure on defendants, um, particularly when they are trying to operate here in England, which is proving not to be a very claimant-friendly jurisdiction. But for accountants, um, my view at the moment is that it's pretty clear the pressure will continue to rise. Uh, I don't think there are any claims against accountants directly in this area that we know of, but it is clear that they're squarely in the activist sites. Um, and a couple of points just to note on that. Um, in relation to auditors in particular, it seems to be generally accepted that they have a pretty key role to play um, in assessing corporate's approach to climate change. They were specifically mentioned <clears throat> in the Shell judgment. And in that case, the approach they'd taken was a positive one. And it, it supported the court in saying that Shell had done what it needed to do. But you can see that that might, might be reversed in particular circumstances. So if, uh, if an auditor's role can be a saving grace for corporates, then it could also potentially be a problem. Um, and you can see the possibility for cases where corporates either join auditors to climate claims against them, or maybe sue auditors directly for negligence if they feel they've not addressed climate risk sufficiently. Um, sorry, another point to be aware of, uh, activists and investors are, to say the least, on the lookout for failings on the part of auditors. So Client Earth recently reiterated complaints it had made a few years ago about accountancy firms allegedly, allegedly failing to be transparent in addressing climate change. Um, and they suggest that auditors risk failing to meet their core legal duties by not adequately considering climate risk. And that, you know, we're saying a client earth, client earth quite a lot. That isn't just a client earth position. Other activists and some investors have supported that position. So it's pretty clear that the, the focus is on auditors and it's not going to be removed at the moment. So climate change litigation is a clear and present risk, uh, but it's very much watch this space from what you said, Laura. Um, what about regulation? Uh, are we going to see increased pressure here? Yeah, I think so. Certainly change that needs to be grappled with and increased scrutiny. Um, and then if you if you couple that with the increased pressure from the litigation that I've just mentioned, I think it's all sort of added together to be a to be a very clear pressure in this area. So uh, in terms of regulation, the first thing that I, I wanted to mention was the ISSB uh, has finally, after a long wait, published its um, standards S1 and S2, which are on sustainability and climate related disclosures, respectively. So those finally came out in June 23. Um, I'm not going to discuss the detail of them, but just a couple of very high-level concerns that I think um, are sort of bouncing around about them. Firstly, the ISSB was specifically formed to, to help set out a common global approach to sustainability disclosures. And despite that, one of the main concerns at the moment is how these two standards will op operate alongside other key sustainability disclosure standards, which are being developed around the world. And there are really difficult questions around how companies will be able to sort of navigate a number of overlapping but not identical disclosure regimes. So in particular for large multinationals that are operating all around the world, that would be a really difficult 
uh, learning curve. And secondly, perhaps even more high level, these standards will inevitably uh, require a knowledge of some very complicated issues facing companies. So again, if you're uh, a multinational operating in lots of different jurisdictions or you've got a very complicated supply chain, it's going to be a, a pretty difficult task to get to grips with what's required. Um, the FRC has published a call for evidence to seek UK views on the standards. And I think the deadline is next week. It's the 11th of October. Uh, views are being sought on things like whether it is technically feasible to prepare these sorts of disclosures, uh, whether they'll result in uh, understandable, accurate and timely disclosures, uh, and whether they'll gener generate benefits that are proportionate to the cost that they involve. So those to me sound like fairly leading questions, but uh, there's been widespread support for the standards, and I don't think we expect anything other than that they'll be implemented. But maybe the outcome of that consultation will give us an idea of what the practical issues might be and how they might be dealt with. Um, the last thing I wanted to say on the regulatory side was that the FRC has published a, a snappily titled Thematic Review of Climate-Related Metrics and Targets. That came out at the end of July. Um, and it concluded that there is incremental improvement in things like setting targets for net zero, but there are still real problems in explaining and clarifying things like company-specific targets and milestones on the way to net zero. So there are still steps to be taken there, and the regulators are, are really watching. So, Richard, I think, I think all of that means that there is a lot to be done. There is pressure to move forward, not only from activists, but also from regulators, from clients, from other potential claimants. Um, and that pressure comes not only from the risk of litigation, which is where we started, but also regulatory action and publicity. So no, we're not a very friend, uh, claimant-friendly jurisdiction, but we certainly can't say the pressure's off for potential defendants in this area. Thank you for joining us. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to listen to more Lawcasts, then please do check out our website at dacbeachcroft slash lawcast. And it's bye-bye for now.